Welcome to the Mid the Pines podcast, a place where Grove City College alumni and faculty give voice to their unique stories, contributions, and accomplishments. Our community is blessed with many individuals who are often recognized for their proficiency, purpose, and principles, all celebrated hallmarks of the distinctive Grove City College education. Learn more about their God-given callings and the work they are undertaking for the common good. These are their personal and professional stories. Hello, this is Joni Baumgartner from Grove City College, and with me today on the Mid the Pines podcast is someone who I was told I should interview because he is an absolute monster, and it was meant in the nicest way possible. Dr. Don Shockey, class of 1963, has lived a life that many people would consider fascinating and that Don himself calls the improbable journey. How did this Pennsylvania farm boy find himself researching shockwave physics and materials fracture science? working for the Stanford Research Institute, consulting for NASA, and pursuing hobbies like working with the ski patrol at Lake Tahoe and diving for abalone off the coast of California. We'll find out today as we chat with Don, who was Grove City College's Man of the Year and Sportsman of the Year in 1963, and who went on to become a Jack Kennedy Memorial Alumni Achievement Award winner in 2010. His PhD in metallurgy and materials science was completed at Carnegie Institute of Technology, now called Carnegie Mellon University, in 1968. And Don is married to Janet, and they have four children and nine grandchildren, and they reside in Menlo Park, California. Don, thank you for being with us today on the Mid the Pines podcast. And thank you for having me, Joni. It's nice to reconnect with Grove City College. Absolutely. Well, you know, Don, first I wanted to thank you for sharing with me the unpublished autobiography that you wrote for your children and grandchildren. Uh, It was completely a fascinating read. Um, But in that document, you wrote that you could see four distinct phases to this improbable journey. That's the way that you've described your life. Um, And would you describe for us how phase one unfolded, how a a Pennsylvania farm boy who hadn't planned on attending college at all found himself here at Grove City? Well, phase one was unexpected and unplanned. I was born and raised in Washington Township, about 50 miles from Grove City. My dad was a steel worker, and I worked at a nearby chicken farm. We had no money for college, and none of my family ever went to college, except for one of my uncles. I was destined to be a farmer or steel worker, get married to someone local, and settle down and raise my kids in Washington Township, just like my cousins and my high school buddies. But my uncle, who had graduated from Grove City College, really wanted me to go to Grove City College. He saw that I had good grades, was pretty good at football, basketball, and track, and felt that I and Grove City would benefit if I went to Grove City College. But I wasn't enthusiastic. Uh, So he acquired a college entrance application and an application for a scholarship, sat down with me, helped me fill them out, and submitted them for me. <laughs> Did it uh-huh. We were undefeated in football my senior year, and after the season, he notified the Grove City College coaches and athletic director, urging them to grant me a scholarship. Then we won our division in basketball, and notified the athletic director again. 
Then in late spring, after I placed fifth in the state in the 880-yard run, I was accepted at Grove City College and granted a scholarship. There were three prerequisites in the scholarship. One, I had to maintain a B average. Two, I had to play football. And three, I had to wait tables in the girls' dormitory. And there was an unusual caveat. It said that I must, quote, report for track in the spring. Grove City guests didn't have a track scholarships. Anyhow, I accepted a scholarship and started on my journey. So that journey to Grove City at, at your uncle's behest was really phase one, just getting you here, starting this um, epic career that we're going to learn more about. So it sounds like um, they kept you really busy during your four years of college with all of those requirements. <laughs> but you um, also wrote in your autobiography about one summer trip. Uh, it seems like maybe you had some free time during the summers. Uh, you went to California for the first time to work. And you wrote something interesting about um, working at the Hotel Del Coronado. What was that experience like? Well, I mentioned that uh, a provision in my scholarship was I had to wait tables, breakfast and dinner each day in the girls' dormitory, Mary Anderson Pew. That had two benefits. One, I got to meet all the girls. (laughs) (laughs) Two, I got experience as a waiter. And I converted that waiter experience into summer jobs. The summer after my freshman year, I landed a waiter's job at a hotel in Southampton, Long Island. And the next summer, I got a job in Cape May, New Jersey. And the third summer, I decided to find a waiter's job on the West Coast. I'd never been west of Eastern Ohio. And I decided to hitchhike to California. (laughs) And after I got there, I got a waiter's job at the historic and very famous Hotel Del Coronado on the beach of Coronado Island off the coast of San Diego. The Hotel Del attracted famous people, and I was privileged to wait on celebrities such as Ronald Reagan, Spencer Tracy, and Marilyn Monroe. And that was a great summer. During the days, I ran the beach, body surfed, and just enjoyed the summer I recall telling my waiter colleagues that summer that I want to live out here someday. So you're right. This uh, inspired me to work in California. Gotcha. That that was your first exposure to it this summer trip. And then you have wound up living there and working there for many decades now. That's amazing. Well, so let's move on to phase two, since you you described your life's journey so neatly in these phases. So I want to move us into phase two of your journey. And that took you from Grove City College to the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh. As we mentioned before, that's now known as Carnegie Mellon University, CMU. But share with us the story of the mysterious letter that led you to pursue your advanced degrees at CMU. Oh, that's a very interesting story, and I didn't learn about it until two years after it happened. In the spring of my senior year at Grove City, when a number of companies were visiting campus and interviewing graduating seniors, and I was considering which job offer to accept, when I received this unanticipated letter from the Carnegie Institute of Technology inviting me to graduate school and offering me a research assistantship. I had no idea the origin of that letter. Why the offer? Very mysterious. I had no connection with Carnegie Tech, knew no students there, had never corresponded with the Institute, and had never even considered continuing my education. But I recognized that this was an opportunity to advance. 
So I turned down the job offers from the companies I had been talking with and accepted the invitation to graduate school. But Joni, graduate school at Carnegie Tech, one of the highest tech universities in the nation, was an academic challenge. And I nearly flunked out that first year. Mm. I was in a high-powered technical program. The math and science base was advanced. And my fellow graduate students were standouts from MIT, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and other top technological schools in the US, as well as India, Japan, China, and Europe. When my first semester grades came out, mine were straight C's, which was a polite way of notifying a student that he was not making it. So in the second semester, I enrolled in two undergraduate courses. My second semester grades were a bit higher. My financial support was continued in the second year. I was catching up to my classmates and was on a path to a master's of science degree. Then in the spring, as I was preparing for the master's exam, I was invited back to Grove City College to speak on the annual Parents' Day program. When I arrived, I was met by Dr. J. Stanley Harker, the Grove City College president, and Fred Kring, the dean of men. And it was then revealed to me the origin of a mysterious letter. I learned that I was an experiment. <laughs> In the spring of my senior year at Grove City, there had been a meeting of university and college presidents. And there was a spirited discussion on whether or not a liberal arts college provided a background that would enable a student to achieve an advanced degree in technology. Some presidents said no, some said yes, but there's no consensus and no data. To test the premise, John Warner, the Canadian tech president, who did not believe a liberal arts graduate could succeed at a high-tech university, challenged a liberal arts college president to choose a graduate whom he thought had potential, and President Warner would support the student with a research assistantship to Carnegie Tech. The presidents would then see how this student fared. Well, I was the one chosen by the GCC president, J. Stanley Harker. It was a one-in-lifetime occurrence, and I happened to be in the right place at just the right time. That was a highly improbable step in my journey. I would never have gone to graduate school otherwise. That's amazing. Uh, it's funny that uh, you didn't learn about this until you had already been, you know, started on your graduate school journey. And then you come to find out later that you're, you were just an experiment. And I'm sure that it, it made you super glad that you <laughs> enrolled in those extra undergrad courses to really give you the boost that you needed and that those grades started to come up and uh, <laughs> you really were making it at that point. So you, you could prove Dr. Harker right. That's amazing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and you also um, shared that you met your wife, Janet, uh, while you were attending what what is now CMU and that your lives changed pretty drastically right after you earned your doctorate in metallurgy and materials science. So that next part of your life includes Janet and you have termed that phase three. So tell us a little bit about meeting her and getting married and all of those things. And then where phase three of your journey actually took you. Yeah, you're right. Things happened uh, incredibly fast. I met Jan in the final year of my PhD program. She had come to Pittsburgh to get an advanced degree in education at Pitt, and we soon started seeing each other regularly. 
Then uh, nine months later, I gave a talk at a technical symposium on my thesis work. And afterwards, a German who was in the audience came up to me, asked me to show him my lab, and then asked if I would consider a postdoctoral appointment at the Ernst Mach Institute in Germany, if he could get financial backing. Well, this seemed like a great opportunity because my goal now was to become a professor at a prestigious university and postdoctoral experience was nearly a prerequisite. Well, he went back to Germany, got the money, made me an offer. This was two months before I was to graduate. Janet was typing my PhD thesis and it forced a big decision. Do I say goodbye to Janet and fly off to Germany? Or do I ask her to marry me and travel to Germany with me? And in June, I received my PhD. In July, we married. And in August, we flew to Germany, where I began my postdoc research, and Janet and I began our life together. What a whirlwind. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm sure it was not without its stresses, but the thrill and excitement of, of that time of life must have been incredible. And Don, tell me what were you researching there at the Ernst Mach Institute in Germany? Well, I was uh, researching the environmental response of materials to uh, corrosive environments and so forth. And uh, as I, that's what was their main uh, drive there at that time. But I stayed there three years instead of one year. And uh, toward the second and third year, they kind of transferred into shock physics, how materials fail under high rate loads like impact and explosions. Mm. So when I came to SRI later, uh, I was in a shock physics department up there. Gotcha. So it really was the groundwork that was laid for the the rest of your career uh, that that played out in California, as well as we'll hear about in a few minutes. Um, one thing that you described um, in the document that you graciously allowed me to read to get to know you better was that you watched the moon landing uh, on live TV in 1969 while you were there in Germany. Uh, with your brand new wife and, you know, starting that new life that you had, it occurred to me that that, that was kind of an interesting foreshadowing of one of your later roles in doing consulting work for NASA. Tell us a little bit about that, please. What projects have you worked with NASA on? Well, I've worked for a lot of for NASA during my 46 years at SRI and quite a variety of projects. There were projects where we wanted to ensure that fracture would not occur. And other projects where we needed to ensure that fracture would occur and at the right instant. A recent and on, ongoing project right now is to develop additive materials, also known as 3D printed materials. You may have heard of those for use in fracture critical situations. 3D printed materials are built up layer by layer by depositing melted material using a laser or other heating device. And as with other materials, the microstructure controls the failure properties. And we need to know how the processing parameters control the microstructure. So we are applying an advanced technology to quantify the topography of the fracture surfaces, understand how microstructural features affect crack propagation, and determine ways to produce more fracture-resistant 3D printed materials. The goals of other projects are just the opposite. 
we needed to make materials that suddenly and totally fracture and at the precise instant of time in order to safely and reliably separate stages of a launch vehicle. Frangible joints, for example, firmly connect the upper stage of a rocket from its core stage during launch, but must totally and instantaneously fracture when the time comes for the space vehicle to separate from the launch vehicle and go into orbit. And this is done by detonating an explosive in the joint. So you have studied all manner of fracture science, but but then with the metallurgy um, degree that you earned at CMU, um, really you you have brought this wealth of knowledge to a lot of modern processes that I think most of us don't think about. You know, I, we all have seen the space shuttle launch and we've seen those, you know, booster rockets fall away. But to think of all the intricate pieces that go into making sure that that happens and that it happens correctly without loss of life um, is a really intense but such an important job. Um, I, I think that it's wonderful that you got to do that with, you know, this improbable journey that, you, that you've been on for the past, uh, you know, 50 plus years. Um, you did describe to me that after you were in Germany, you said you you stayed there about three years. Is that right? Yeah, 33 months. Okay. One year postdoc appointment, but uh, we loved it so well over there that we stayed. And we figured right. if we didn't come back there for 33 months, we wouldn't come back because we were loving it over there. Right. But you had been looking um, at a way to return to the United States, um, maybe to be near your parents um, and, and her parents again. But you wound up at Stanford Research Institute in California. So how did that come about? This, this is where we jumped to stage four of your career journey. You went from Germany to Stanford. And what was that like? And, um, you know, help our listeners understand what fracture science is, because that's really been the core of what you've done with SRI for all of these years. Well, the way I got to California was... Uh... When I got to Germany, there was another postdoc from America in the incident, and we got to be good buddies. And he had worked at SRI International, Stanford Research Institute, and he left uh, after the first year. I stayed two more years after he left. But when he heard I was ready to come back, he uh, invited me to come to SRI and give a seminar, and uh, I did, and uh, I got an offer. and. Uh, we moved from uh, Freiburg, Germany to Menlo Park, California. But flew over talking to my parents and my, my parents-in-law and so forth and never stopped in Pennsylvania. The goal of Fracture Science is to develop and apply technologies that promote the understanding of how and why things break. With a better understanding, we're able to design and build things that are more fail-safe, less likely to fail. Or conversely, as I mentioned just now, build components that fracture completely and instantly when required. My colleagues and I developed a leapfrog advance in fracture science. The technology known as FRASTA allows a failure event to be reconstructed at the microstructural level, thereby providing a significant tool for developing new materials, like 3D printer materials I mentioned earlier, and for determining the cause of a structural failure. 
1998, you founded the Center for Fracture Physics at the Stanford Research Institute. What projects are currently being researched there? And what are your hopes for the future of that research center that you started? Well, one of our recent projects is fracture of pressurized gas pipelines. These buried structures served their purpose for many years, but then they suddenly burst, causing major damage and even death. Our objective is to understand how and when a microcrack initiates in the pipeline and slowly grows in the pipe wall over the years until the pipeline suddenly and catastrophically fails. We're attempting to construct computational models and inspection techniques that allow pipe lifetime to be predicted so that a pipe can be taken out of service before it suddenly bursts. That's amazing. I, I know that um, these kinds of of projects that you've been working on are really integral. They have been some things that, you know, most of us don't really think about, but without the work that you've done, without the the study and research and then, you know, development and and all of all of the things that go into the the work that you've done with fracture science, like you've made a tremendous impact in the world and I'm sure that you've saved many lives. And I know I know there is a story about saving a life um, that you that you've shared, and I'll get we'll get to that too in just a minute. Um, but I did want to ask you: you worked at Stanford University, the research center there, for 46 years until you retired in 2018. But then you did continue working for NASA as a consultant for these past four years, only just retiring last month in June of 2022. So, gosh, after that stellar career, and again, doing the, the intense work that you've done, how on earth are you spending your free time these days, Don? <laughs> well, after I retired from SRI uh, four years ago, I've been hiking five six miles almost every day. And I love being in nature and getting the benefit of exercise. And I serve on the volunteer trail patrol, answering questions from other hikers and notifying the rangers when a tree is down of the trail and so forth. I also take a yoga class three times a week, and I have just written and self-published a novella, a small novel, uh -huh. which is available from Amazon, called Saved by an Avalanche. Well, that's great, and I'm sure that's born out of some of the hobbies that you have had uh, along the way too, which we will get to uh, just after this short commercial break. All roads lead home for Homecoming 2022. It's the biggest gathering of the year and we are so excited to have alumni back home on Friday, September 30th through Sunday, October 2nd. Class years ending in twos and sevens will celebrate reunions and Greek groups will mark special anniversaries with a lineup of unique events. Congratulations to Tri Zetas on their 105th anniversary, Beta Sigma on their 100th anniversary, and Alpha Beta Tau and Omicron Xi celebrating their 75th anniversaries. Reconnect with classmates, enjoy the best parade in the region, and all that homecoming has to offer. Register now at alumni.gcc.edu slash homecoming. However you travel and no matter what road you take, make sure you get back home to Grove City College this fall 
to enjoy memory reminiscing to memory making with fellow alumni and friends. Welcome back to the Mid the Pines podcast. I have Dr. Don Shockey from the class of 1963 as my guest here today. And we've been talking with you, Don, about the incredible career that you have had as a scientist and researcher. But I would like to shift and spend a few minutes talking about some of the truly intriguing hobbies that you have developed over the years. I found it really interesting that another of your hobbies for the last 45 years or so was being a ski patrolman and a ski patrol instructor in the South Lake Tahoe region. So how did you get involved with ski patrolling? Well, that that same guy who I met in Aaron Smock Institute in Germany and who went to back to SRI, when I joined SRI, he immediately encouraged me to join the National Ski Patrol, which is a volunteer organization, because uh, he was a ski patrolman. I took the required first aid courses, and uh, I patrolled with him for the next four decades. You mentioned avalanches earlier um, and having written a novella about that topic. Have you found with all of your experience with skiing that that has anything at all to do with fracture science? Oh, yeah, I think there is. And uh, like I say, I've been uh, patrolling for four decades. Uh, and I've been teaching avalanches, avalanche courses and everything, how to avoid them and how to recognize the danger and so forth. But just recently, in the last couple of years, I had an idea of how to apply fracture science to uh, avalanches. And avalanches result in a snowpack fracture. And if we can predict when and where the snowpack will fail, that'll result in a safer environment. And I think we could more reliably initiate avalanches uh, before the ski lifts open when no skiers are in danger. And uh, I have just described that idea in that novella that I'm writing. It's hmm. the epilogue of how we might do this. So it might be a patentable idea. I'm, I'm thinking about that. That's great. You have made quite a difference, it seems, um, in a lot of different realms. Uh, not only your, you know, professional work, but then, you know, here in, in ski patrolling in something that you've just done as a hobby, but uh, sounds like you're bringing the knowledge that you have from the career that you were blessed with, you know, to, to bear on one more arena that you've been able to touch, you know, with, with your time and, and your, uh, your expertise. In, in the time that you've been doing ski patrolling, you've been part of several rescues. Uh, one in particular stuck out from, from what I read. Would you mind sharing that one with us about the little girl? Oh, yeah, that was an unusual rescue. We don't have this very often, thank goodness. But uh, one day, I don't know how many years ago it was, uh, I was training a uh, ski patrol candidate, and we heard people yelling, there's a hangar, there's a hangar. And we skied down around the curve, and we saw a little girl hanging from a chairlift. She was uh, four stories above the surface of the snow, wow. and she was slipping off. And uh, one of the lift operators had already taken a snowmobile, going to tower above her, and was starting to come down the cable with a sling. But uh, she was slipping. And so what I did was I skied rapidly as I could underneath her, and the idea was uh, that if she fell, I was going to break her fall because I was going to let her fall on me. I was going to lean back, let her skis past my head, and uh, grab her and fall back on my back. And uh, that's what happened. And uh, 
worked out just like I planned. But she was screaming and crying like crazy when uh, she was laying on top of me after we were down. And I thought she was just horrified, but it uh, turned out that uh, her ski had hit my knee and uh, she had broken her leg. Oh, <laughs> but no. that's much better than her dying, you know. And uh, exactly. I still have a lump on my knee from that. From that wow. Yeah, that was an unusual, unusual uh, rescue. Well, gosh, it was so great that you were at the right place at the right time that you, you've shared that that happening to you more than once in your life. That's for sure. So you've been to the highest heights and you've skied the mountains for many, many years, but you've also gone diving down to the depths. And I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit about another hobby that you have pursued in California, which is diving for abalone. Okay, first of all, Don, I really need you to educate me here. What is an abalone? And then second, what is that whole what is that whole diving experience like? <laughs> well, like you, I had never heard of an abalone before I came to California. I learned it when I got out here. An abalone is a unique type of snail. They have a single shell, which can be as large as 10 inches, that protects the body, which is a strong muscle that attaches to rocks on the ocean floor. Abalone is a prized food item. It's considered a delicacy and very expensive, if you can even find a place that sells them. Diving for abalone is a fun sport, but it can also be dangerous. Abalone attach themselves to rocks below the ocean surface, and you have to hold your breath, dive to the ocean bottom, typically 20 to 25 feet, search the rocks, find an abalone, pry it off the rock, and kick back up to the surface. Air tanks and scuba gear are not allowed. So if you should get tangled in the kelp while in the water and can't reach the surface to get a gasp of air, it could be fatal. Yes, I had one near-death experience. In one, I was, uh, I was badly tangled in the kelp, and I had my dive knife out, and I was cutting some of it away from my dive, life, dive knife, but uh, still was tangled. I fought my way up to about three feet, from the surface, completely out of breath. And my dive partner, who was laying on an inflated mat and watching me, was able to reach down, grab my outstretched hand, and pull me to the surface. So close, but I definitely would not have survived had my dive partner not been within reach. You said you you go in pairs then because it's that dangerous. Yeah, we do. That's amazing. And how long have you done that? Since I got to California, I did three things. I joined SRI, I became a ski patrolman, and I became an avalanche diver all in about a month. <laughs> yeah, it's all because of that guy that I met in, in Germany. I'd say he's pretty instrumental in, in your life, huh? He really was. He really was. So you're quite the adventurer. Earlier, you described that in your free time, you hike for miles a day and you ski and you dive and you do all sorts of things that just continue to stretch the limits of, you know, your physical abilities. It seems like that kind of physical activity has really been another theme of your life. Um, And I said in our intro that you were actually named Sportsman of the Year in 1963, and you played football, and you ran track, as you said. Um, tell us about just what other types of sports and recreation, you know, recreational activities you've done throughout your life. 
Well, abalone diving and ski patrolling were my weekend activities uh, a lot, but uh, during the week, I played a lot of tennis, hmm. and I've done a lot of distance running. I've also done a lot of backpacking, uh, especially in the Lake Tahoe region in the high Sierras and along the Pacific Coast. I like to stay active. Does your wife get to do many of those activities alongside you? She's not as crazy as me, no. <laughs> she <laughs> skis a lot, and my kids all ski. And they're all great skiers now. Uh, nobody's ever happily dived with me. They're too smart for that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have a condo up in Lake Tahoe, and we still go up there regularly, and we're still skiing. Okay. The whole family. Oh, that's wonderful. And when it comes to your whole family, um, one thing I really appreciated about what I read in your autobiography was that you live by this set of core principles. And I know that you've taught them to your children and encouraged them to live by them as well. Would you share with us what are these principles that you have staked your life upon? Yeah, I will. Uh, when I wrote my memoirs two years ago, it became clear to me what these core principles are. And I've identified six of them. And they were instilled in me by my parents and my early life experiences. The first core principle was the golden rule. Do unto others. Before you speak or act, put yourself in the other person's shoes and ask yourself, how would you feel if they said or did that to you? Then treat others as you would like them to treat you. The second core principle is to think positive. Always look at the good side. And there always is a good side of any situation, however dreary it may seem. Seek something helpful or enabling that could be learned from instances that appear grim or distasteful. Thirdly, work hard. My dad was a role model, never standing still, always helping others, putting in his hours at work in a steel-making plant, and striving for the best results from his labor. Fourth core principle is to live simply. Don't buy things you don't need. Use what you have. Get all your use out of something. Repair, reuse, retrofit, and recycle. Don't add to garbage dumps. Fifthly, enjoy nature. Appreciate this world. Look around you at the soil and rocks, trees and flowers, the sky, the clouds, the animals, birds, fish, and even the bugs. Enjoy nature and stay physically active each day. And sixth, be happy. Don't dwell on painful things that happened in the past. Let wounds heal. Don't keep picking them open. Appreciate what you have. Revel in it and do the things that really make you happy. These core principles are the fundamental beliefs that guided and dictated my behavior through my life and enabled my improbable journey. They're the reason I was admitted to college, Grove City, chosen for that one in a million opportunity to attend graduate school, offered a postdoctoral appointment in Germany, and invited to join a California Research Institute. I'm really grateful. Those sound like words to live by. There was one other thing that I wanted to call out from the autobiography, and that was, as you talked about these four phases of your life, you know, the different major stops along the way, and your ability to take the next step as it, as it came up. Um, you made a really astute observation, and I wanted to just read our listeners a really short excerpt from your autobiography. You said, 
At each of these four stages of my journey, there were two prerequisites for advancement. One, a record of accomplishments. And two, a person who was motivated to promote me to the next stage. Because of my work ethic, I had the required accomplishments. Because of my golden rule philosophy and my positive and upbeat attitude, there was an individual at each stage who strongly believed in me and actively advocated me for advancement. I think that that was a really great observation, just that there are these these prerequisites, you know, to move ahead in life, to get ahead, to accomplish your goals and to achieve great things. You do have to work hard. You have to accomplish something. You have to put your mind to it and, and your hand to it. But then I love that you recognize that there was there were instrumental people along the way that really came alongside you and were there to champion you to the next stage. So given that, um, what advice would you share with our younger alumni who are either just starting out in their careers or you know, perhaps are at that place where they feel like um, change is needed or a a new journey is is lying ahead. What is it that they need to do or what is it that they need to look for? Well, I would encourage them to work hard and do the best they can for their company or employer. By doing so, they will, one, generate a record of accomplishments and two, impress their superiors will be advocates when advancement opportunities arise. And concurrently, they should help their colleagues listen to their concerns and ideas and suggest ways to make things better. Put themselves in their shoes and follow the golden rule, do unto others. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great rule to live by. And um, it's it's certainly served you well as you have uh, gone throughout your life through this storied career that has taken you all over the world and, you know, working for prestigious organizations and discovering, you know, new um, insights into the scientific realm that have helped all of mankind. I think that that golden rule has, has definitely been a good guide for you. Don, I've had such a great time talking with you today and just learning more about the extraordinary life that you've lived and this improbable journey. And I just want to thank you so much for taking these few minutes to share your story with us today. Well, Joni, I had a great time too. It was fun to look back on what's happened in my life and recall some of those meaningful events. If anyone could benefit from my experiences, I'd be most pleased. And hey, if, if any of my former classmates or teammates listen to this podcast, I'd love it if they would email or text me. It would be fun to reminisce with them and hear how life has been since we graduated. Your 60th reunion of graduating from Grove City College is coming up in 2023, Don. So I would echo your encouragement of your classmates to get in touch, reconnect. And I would offer that if anybody would like to contact Don, uh, you can reach me at alumni at gcc.edu. Send me an email. I'll be happy to connect you. So Don, thank you again for taking the time today. It's been a great pleasure. It's been my, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Home is where everything Thank you for listening to the Mid the Pines podcast. Explore more episodes at alumni.gcc.edu slash podcast. Our co-producers are Joni Baumgartner and Amy Evans. Research provided by Janice Zinsner Inman, class of 1987. Audio editing is provided by Jennifer Hiles. 
Our theme music is Home, courtesy of the family of the late David M. Bailey, class of 1988. Contact us at alumni at gcc.edu for more information. We hope you'll join us again, Mid the Pines.